millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Yesterday, we, in, in sort of the part one of this, of I guess it might turn into a series, just the podcast that we're doing right now, part one about everything, we talked about why why the systemic racism is everyone's problem and why you know everyone needs to care about this it is not just the problem of the uh, people's group who are suffering through it and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the structural issues that cause that what we can possibly do about it now we're also going to talk about the <laughs> the I'm, I'm laughing not from joy trust me all of these other intersecting issues that are going on with it at the same mm. time from the pandemic that was just barely starting to get contained now being mixed with, you know, great breeding grounds for COVID. You know, how else do people express themselves um, when they feel there is an injustice going on? So there's that intersection. And then there's everything that has to do with the federal government versus states' rights and that balance of power, which is we're, we're going to get into all of that a little bit more in part two. Yeah. And uh, before before we just keep going with the content, uh, a new call out that we that that we were finally able to, to dig up for permission is Jean Tsui, a longtime friend of mine. Um, thank you for all your help in putting together our content. And one more thing you should know about is we have built. So for those of you who don't like go to the website or get the emails, but just listen to the podcast. That's cool. That's how I consume most of my podcast, too. We have made a guide on how to hold your local police accountable better when they commit crimes, right? Or when they brutalize citizens in your jurisdiction. Um, it's on reconsidermedia.com. We, if basically you're, you're, if, if you believe that this is a good use of your time to, or, or that it's important and you are looking for a pathway to doing it, uh, we've created a guide on how to do it safely. Um, without getting tear gassed. So go check that out. But speaking of tear gassing, one of the things we, we asked ourselves was why does this keep happening in particular in the United States? Right. And I think like saying, ah, racism, right? Okay, great. There's probably a little bit more to it that we can unpack here. That's that also gives us more direction for actionability. And so we, we dove into this, not just from the perspective of racism in the police forces, although there's substantial evidence that that is there and that training actually isn't helping much. Uh, so it's a, it's a real big kettle of fish. But, but we also looked at it from the perspective of why are, um, you know, why, why are police officers so frequently using excessive force and 
using violence unprovoked against peaceful protesters practicing their constitutionally granted First Amendment rights. And so we, we start diving into some of the different hypotheses. Yeah, some of the different hypotheses that have been kind of tested by uh, some good science or some good research. And we want to share a little bit of that. And I, I think I, I just want to add that part of how we're sharing this tonight is a little in the spirit of um, something that I, President Obama mentioned earlier in a speech tonight, so we're recording the evening of June 3rd, that actually struck me as interesting, um, which was, you know, maybe 80% of it was, you know, inspiring, but kind of like a, a general come together message, which frankly we need right now. But the, the last bit of it, he actually made a specific suggestion that struck, uh, that, that kind of stuck out to me, which was uh, mayors, local leaders, so on and so forth. Now is the time to reach out to your community and receive the feedback you need to make the changes that are necessary, because the best thing to do is figure this out on a local scale. He didn't say a whole lot about the implicit threat that Trump made, which, I mean, makes sense. But his point was, now's, now's the time to start thinking about what the specific changes not only need to be, but how we implement and get them there, recognizing that, you know, uh, ideas with good intentions don't always work out because there are unintended consequences. Consequences. So we're at this point. How can we move the conversation in a, in a direction that generates ideas? We're gonna, not going to have a lot of them. We have a couple. We'd love to hear more from you. Uh, come to the Facebook group. You can do that and, and chat with us. But now's the time for ideas. So that's where some of this is coming from. Yeah. So. One of the things we're going to dive into immediately is is general use of excessive force against people who are not a physical threat to the police or not resisting arrest or anything like that. And and what we've seen on display over the last weekend is uh, this against, you know, uh, unarmed peaceful protesters. And it seems, you know, as, as we talked about in part one, it's it's epidemic or it's endemic, whatever, systemic. It's emic. It's some kind of emic. And uh, and so we, we looked into some reporting about some research about this, and I want to share something from the Marshall Project. Quote, researchers have spent 50 years studying way, the way crowds of protesters and crowds of police behave and what happens when the two interact. One thing they will tell you is that when the police respond by escalating force, such as wearing riot gear from the start or using tear gas on protesters, it does not work. In fact, disproportionate police force is one of the things that can make a peaceful protest not so peaceful. But if we know that, and have known that for decades, why are police still doing it? So I might, I might call this a shock and awe fallacy, right? The fallacy being, oh, if we show up with overwhelming force and point guns at people, we'll cow them and, and they'll run away. And, uh, you know, and, and job done. And we didn't actually have to use force because look at all of the, you know, because because people ran away before we did anything, right? Because because they were afraid. And the shock and awe fallacy, you know, according to this research at the Marshall Project sites is, uh, you know, unfortunately backfires. It makes these these violent confrontations more likely. Another quote from it is, quote, there's this failed mindset of if we show force immediately, we will deter criminal activity or unruly activity. And show me where that has worked, says Scott Thompson, the former chief of police in Camden, New Jersey. That's the primal response, he said. The adrenaline starts to pump. The temperature in the room is rising. And you want to go one step higher. But what we need to know as professionals is that there are times if we go one step higher, we are forcing them to go one step higher, end quote. 
That's real interesting. And I honestly, I, I can't help. I haven't read this piece yet. We're kind of collecting a lot of this information independently and, and throwing it together uh, quickly so that we can chat more. But um, I haven't read this paper yet. Um, I see that it was made fairly recently. And just the idea of shock and awe, when I think about sort of the analogy makes a lot of sense to me because that that very accurately represented what the strategy was when we went into Iraq in 2003. And everyone kind of thought that once, you know, once the the existing government structures there fell apart, everything would just go our way and it would be easy. It, we, we would beat them like we did, you know, in the Persian Gulf War, but, you know, we'll even have a more friendly state. And it just completely and utterly backfired. Um, so even, I mean, that's why the analogy makes sense. It's not just the front end, but the back end. This can be expected to fail afterwards, right? We've right. seen this already, not just in the world of policing, but in the world of military conflict. Um, you know, uh, you, you can't just overwhelming force doesn't necessarily move the, 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 the situation in a particular region in your interest and, you know, pushing the other side right now to get more angry and respond more violently, like, uh, this Marshall project uh, paper is talking about, you know, w- we don't need that here. There are anyways, there are other ways. I think the I think the nuance to add to this is that, you know, if the police actually showed up with overwhelming violent force and just deployed it immediately. So let's say they just showed up with tanks and just started blowing people up, right? Just lighting them up, flamethrowers, bombs dropping out of planes, whatever, right? Like you would actually disperse people immediately like it would work short term. And I think the Iraq analogy is better in that it would also engender a full blown rebellion, right? If you did it a lot. And and what's I I remember someone telling me uh, not that I've well, but I remember someone telling me that the context for why they were telling me is is not really related to what they're telling me. Just just so you know, I wasn't planning to get in a fight here. But they said, look, if you're going to throw a punch at someone, the only logical thing to do is throw a punch that knocks them out. Anything else is just asking for trouble. Right. And you go, huh? Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, if you're going to you know, if you are going to start using force to get rid of people. Um, or, or to try to solve a situation, it has to be sufficiently, you know, sufficiently large force that that the other person, you know, that the other side is quote unquote knocked out. And part of the problem is that you know the police begin using a small amount of force, such as tear gas, right? Which is actually, largely speaking, as we've seen from these videos, like not particularly effective in dispersing crowds. They just water it down or throw it out. All it does is piss them off, right? And, and, you know, you hear these jokes, it's like, it's like, oh, don't, you know, if you, uh, what happens when you shoot Chuck Norris, you just make him angrier, right? And it's the same thing here, where if the police show up and they look tough and they're being aggressive with the hope of cowing people, it's actually not presenting that level of truly overwhelming force. Um, the way that, you know, lighting them, lighting up on people with tanks would, it's this like tit for tat escalation that has been shown over and over to just lead to more fighting. It's a, it's a like consistently unarguably failed tactic over time. And yet they keep doing. Yeah. And I think you might know a little bit more about this than I do, Eric, but if if we're looking at sort of how the culture of policing in the U S came to be, you mentioned that it's grown out of a British model of preserving order uh, to some degree. 
I, I'm curious more about what you think about that because I I have a reflection on it as it relates to the the militarization aspect here. But so how does that work? How does that relationship work? Yeah, we can even just use the branding of our police versus some other police as a way of understanding how this engenders a different mindset historically. So in Ireland, for example, they're called the Garda or the Guard, right? What do they and what does the guard do? Well, they guard things, right? Officers, right? If you think of someone who is an officer, that's a military rank. A sergeant is a military rank. Captain, colonel, military ranks. And the even even these words, I need to dig up the the research, but I have seen it. Uh, so you'll ho- hopefully I'll, I'll have the citation. Um, there is a slight correlation even in Europe. So we take the United States out of it, where Countries where the police are called police or polizai or something like that uh, have a higher incident of police brutality than in places where they're called the guard. We actually had our uh, piece on peace officers earlier and how much that name change might make an impact. And so the the trick is ultimately that the sorry, the trick is ultimately that like the history of the United States police force is that, of course, you know, the police were originally uh, part of British colonies and they just kind of evolved out of that. So the, you know, much in the same way that like, hey, remember when I kind of mentioned this Boston massacre thing uh, in the last episode where David McAtee was killed, right? Because like maybe someone fired a shot and the police just opened up. Well, there's a reason, you know, there's a reason like it seems like a good analogy to the Boston massacre because it's a similar policing tactic, which is to use force to enforce order uh, and to maintain order as opposed to try to prevent crime. And the, the paper that I've, that I've read about this um, by uh, Dr. Gary Potter, uh, H, of course, linked in the, linked in the show notes, um, makes, a, you know, makes a decent case with a lot, with a lot of anecdotal evidence that, you know, that, that ties what the British were doing in the Revolutionary War, what the original, initial British troops who were serving as police um, did, and then ties that to what American police forces, to a large extent, have done actually throughout the entire history of the United States. Everything from, you know, the police being used to put down strikes, to, uh, to actually working with crime and be, you know, becoming like corrupted by organized crime in the uh, 1920s and 30s during Prohibition. Um, so he makes this case that, that we've designed a system that is more responsive to disorder than it is to crime. Uh, and therefore, you know, their, their hackles get up when they see something disordered, right? So like, hey, these people are all on the street and they're blocking traffic and they're not allowed to be here and, and let's go get them, as opposed to getting all bent out of shape, I don't know, when, when an officer you know, when, when a fellow officer, uh, you know, shoots an innocent person in the eyeball with a uh, repellent and blinds them permanently, right? So that, that model of preservation of order rather than limiting or, or preventing crime seems to be one of, the, one of the reasons that it seems obvious to the United States that uh, force is a major part of their toolkit. It is, and it's become so incrementally over the last 20 years and something that really just continues to kind of like stick out as a weird contradiction in my mind is, uh, on the one hand, as the war on terror, uh, war on terror, excuse me, went on, 
more and more domestic security agencies um, were able to acquire uh, weaponry that was generally reserved for uh, the military or the National Guard or, or something like that. Um, aside from like specialized teams of, of police officers. That changed over time as the perceived threat to terrorism at home, you know, really grew after 9-11. And um, that trend never really stopped. And a lot of money and a lot of, you know, military weaponry, uh, which is used to kill adversaries on the battlefield, went to um, police departments all around uh, the country. And so, something that's just really been on my mind lately with the pandemic, um, because I don't, we can't, shouldn't forget about the pandemic, right? Is so many people were, I mean, before George Floyd got killed, um, they they seemed unconcerned with the hundred thousand people who were, who died and were willing to go out and not wear masks and go to a bar already. And often, like the justification that I would hear is like, "Oh, well, people die in everything." But the flip side is, after nine eleven, we spent trillions of dollars on chasing after a risk that was statistically um, so much less than what we're confronting right now. So I feel like in a way the war on terror is related to what's, I mean, it's very clearly is related to what's going on here, right? But that, you look at that and then you look at how veterans talk about their own experience in battles and they talk about fire discipline and they talk about not pointing your gun at someone unless you're ready to kill them. And like, I I have some experience with firearms and I have some basic fire discipline too, although clearly not as well trained as anyone in a professional setting would be. But like, you don't point your gun at someone unless like it's come to that point and it's immediate. And despite having gotten more and more military weapons over the last 20 years as a result of this risk that was insignificant to us relative to COVID-19, it, it appears that so many police officers haven't gotten the requisite training for that weaponry. They're still, you have videos and pictures of, of, of police officers all over the country approaching crowds of unarmed people with guns pointed at them. And soldiers talk about how this is the worst thing to do when you're in a situation like this, because like this, this paper from the Marshall Project, it just escalates the, the situation. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com acast. 
and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yes. So the third thing we looked into was the psychology of the police in the United States. And all of this interplays, right? The, the history of how the police were built, the, the tactics that they've been using. Uh, all of this plays into a third thing, which is the psychology, and in particular, the psychology of the kind of people who join the police force. So, and again, we're talking about statistical groupings here. What, it, what is most likely? I said to a friend earlier, I'm not a copist. I have plenty of cop friends, right? And the, do you get the joke? Sorry, it's a, it's a really bad joke. But, but the, you know, the, the point here is not that every cop is evil, but that uh, there are some statistical trends we see that, that seem to be explanatory of some of the, the behavior that we see. And by the way, I do have plenty of cop friends. So when I do say there are many individual police who are, you know, great people who are like bloody doing their best. I believe it. Um, so anyway, there's, there's, so I'm reading this Cornell, uh, paper. It's by, let me find the professor, three professors, Hall of Arling of University of Texas, professor Hall of Emory and professor Perry of, uh, Cornell. And this was made in 2016. And they talk about, um, you know, they cite a bunch of other stuff and they, they cite this idea uh, that's been studied in the past in 2008 and 2012 by some other professors called social dominance orientation, which is a, uh, it's a fancy term of saying it's the extent to which individuals value the maintenance of hierarchical, hierarchical group superiority in their interactions with others. So we might see this, uh, I'm just going to take examples from my own life in sports teams in fraternities where, you know, someone is, is more, has more authority than, than someone else. And people with high social dominance orientation tend to want to fit into those kinds of hierarchies and enforce them. There are some ways that you can, that you can survey people to find out where they end up on this SDO scale. And, uh, you know, you might be less surprised uh, to hear that police officers uh, have an SDO kind of scoring uh, that is significantly higher than does the general population. Okay, great. And that more seasoned officers have a higher SDO than younger officers and that younger officers SDO tends to go up over time, which the, the hypothesis there is that, you know, uh, the the being in the police force with high SDO, you know, further reinforces and grows your own SDO. And they've also found that cops with higher SDO than other cops tend to favor, as do civilians. So both civilians and cops with higher SDO tend to favor more severe punishment when members of socially subordinate groups fail to submit. So as such, police officers with high SDO are likely to inflict more severe punishment on civilians who do not adhere to their demands during police civilian interactions. So hmm. it, it, there's a very long way of saying that, at least in the United States, it seems to be the case that the, that the you know, there's research that suggests that the police force has, police forces in the United States tend to, on average, statistically recruit people with this higher sense of uh, social dominance order ideology that, um, that essentially, and they get more offended when people don't do what they tell them because I'm higher in the social hierarchy than you, I'm a cop. You're just a kid or a person and, you know, mix that in with the racism when when people do have it and you have an even higher sense of social dominance. Uh, and there is this there is this sense that people with high SDO have this belief that they will that they will admit to 
that when someone does not obey, you know, does not submit to someone else of higher social dominance, they should be punished. And so, you know, when a cop says do X and then someone doesn't and they start beating them up, that might be part of the reason why. Then there's also the tendency that police unions will often protect its members from negative consequences and aim to preserve their own budgets because that's in their interest. Uh, and unions look out for their members at the expense of those that they work for. And we talked about this a little bit in the last episode about how uh, there is a tendency for other police officers who may not be directly involved in committing a crime, basically kind of staying quiet and not raising their voice um, if other people don't. And so this plays into that a little bit. But um, Eric, you looked into this bit more than I did. So you, I you, did. Why, why don't you talk about that? So I, I got a little bit deeper into that because I've always been interested in unions. I worked with the unions a lot during the years of 2009 to 2013 and was often kind of astounded at the, the extent that they would go to prevent their own workers. So these were like steel unions and, and kind of such. So, so private labor unions. Um, and was often astounded at the extent to which the individual unions that I was working with, as, as opposed to, you know, I, I don't have good stats globally, what they would go to prevent negative consequences to hap, you know, happening to uh, a, a worker who, who did something that I felt pretty strongly was bad. A good example was I was working at an oil plant and there was this big tank uh, full of oil. It was an oil processing tank, but it was open topped for engineering reasons. And uh, there's a catwalk over it and uh, a worker, a unionized worker who seemed to be having a bad day, was caught on camera. I saw it on camera where he just took a wheelbarrow and lifted it over the catwalk and threw it in and walked away um, in, into the, the, this processing tank and wrecked a bunch of equipment, right, and shut down half the plant for a couple of days. And it cost an enormous amount of money. Very obviously not a mistake, very clearly intentional. And uh, I kind of just, I was working very closely actually with the director of operations, who's the one that showed me uh, the thing. And, and, you know, I formed my own opinion, independent opinion about what this person had done. And I found out a few weeks later that the guy got paid leave while I was investigated and then could not be fired. And the director of operations is outraged. And when I was hearing about some cops, you know, it's like they did this thing. And so what happens? They get put on paid leave while the investigation happens and then nothing bad happens to them. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds really familiar. And lo and behold, of course, police officers are unionized. And um, I dug a little bit deeper into a group called checkthepolice.org, who's got, they've got plenty of citations here, um, but they, they seem to, or they seem to have um, kind of distilled down ways that, that police unions, right, that, that's like similar to my experience here in, in oil country, prevent uh, accountability or, or limit or block accountability and, and consequences for police officers who, who misbehave. Um, sorry, that's putting it maybe too lightly, but we'll just go with it. So there are six ways. One, so they, they, uh, in the, so, and these are things that end up in their contracts, right? Unions have collective bargaining and they, they get a contract with the city, right? Or the municipality. So in their contracts, there will be rules that complaints against police officers that are submitted too many days after an incident, or if an investigation takes too long to complete are automatically disqualified. So they cannot end up on your record. Like if you get shot in the face by a cop and it takes you too long to complain because I don't know, maybe you're in the hospital, too bad, right? And the unions bargained for that. Preventing officers from being interrogated immediately after being involved in an incident or otherwise restricting how, when, or where they can be interrogated. If you've ever seen on like cop shows that cops get together and make sure that they have 
the you know get their story straight right everyone's telling the same story when there's otherwise a lack of evidence uh this creates a lot of good space to do that how often it happens within that space we don't know but um it's certainly you know like preventing immediate investigation um what is the good of that besides you know giving cops the opportunity to to lie if they feel like they need to um, three, giving officers access to information that civilians do not get prior to being interrogated. So these are civilian interrogators who don't get this evidence um, or information. Four, requiring cities to pay costs related to police misconduct, including by giving officers paid leave while under investigation, paying legal fees, and or the cost of settlements. So if a cop, a, a someone who's you know part of a union, um, shoots somebody in the face and someone sues the police department, um, it's not the police department has no negative financial repercussions again and this is in many cities not all of them uh it's just the city it's just and, and the city means the taxpayer so it means if a cop shoots somebody in the face guess who's paying it's me and it's you so there's no negative financial consequences again in many of the cities unions will have parts in their contracts that prevent information on past misconduct from being recorded or retained in an officer's personnel file so they will require that past misconduct goes off their file uh, so it's, you know, it's much harder for, uh, you know, an investigator or prosecutor to get their hands on it. And then limiting disciplinary consequences for officers or limiting the capacity of civilian oversight structures and or the media to hold police accountable. And, you know, beyond that, there is some soft power that they have to um, actually change the law or, or prevent a change in law that defines uh, when it's illegal for cops to do to use force in, in certain situations versus others. So. You know, as we mentioned in the last episode, cops have special power and they have special rules and they have special responsibility, you know, and, and if you've ever heard of 007's like license to kill, right, it's, it's cops have a license to use force in, in ways that the rest of us don't. And uh, there could be laws that are stricter that would hold them to that would that would make it more likely that police brutality or violence is um, becomes a criminal matter. But unions may have influenced local, you know, local legislature to, to prevent that. So. So, you know, again, not not too sh- not too shocking here that that when you have an organization, a union that's whose whose primary purpose is to protect and bargain for a group of workers, it's perhaps not too surprising that they will uh, value the you know the they will value their workers you know uh, well being over other considerations such as uh, justice and transparency and, and other things like that. So we have all these systemic reasons uh, that, that, dri- that are part of what, are, what, are, what are is driving you know, police brutality and violence in the United States um, against its citizens. And what we want to suggest is uh, what we see as a novel path to helping uh, make this better, right? To to hold police accountable, because um, as we said in in part one, we believe that that you know, this magical eighty percent of Americans would agree that look, police should just be, just be held accountable for their action. And some people would say we need to demilitarize them or defund them. And some people would say, you know, there's all sorts of ideas for a lot of solutions. But I think the one that everyone can get behind is accountability. Um, and consequences, the way that you and I face them when we commit crimes. And um, so we want to talk about that approach. All sorts of other good stuff that you can do. We're actually having a lot of conversation on the Facebook group. A lot of people are adding, hey, there's Campaign Zero. There's uh, Obama.org has some guidelines. There's all sorts of different pathways you can take to 
make the situation better. And, and this is the one that we came up with that really drives at the incentives. And that's the thing that, you know, we're often looking for root causes here. And so what's the incentive for police officers? Well, not get fired and not go to jail. And, uh, you know, kind of like anyone at work, the most basic incentive is, is keep your job, keep your head down. And what are the, who do they report to? They either report to an elected sheriff or an elected like city council or mayor, right? And so for those elected individuals, what's their incentive? It's to keep power and not to lose power. And guess what? November's coming up. Someone's running against them. And what's that person's incentive? Well, they want power. And how do they get power? Well, by golly, it's by you voting for them. And what's great about local elections is there's some of the least tribal bullshitty, least wedgie in America, right? And so like often it's the case there isn't even a political party, right? It's just a, it's just a person, right? It's just, you know, Mike or Susan, right? Just running for mayor. Great. So what this means is this is actually outsized potential compared to the national route to make a real difference with a fairly small amount of people, again, in your community. And that's always the trade-off, right? Do you make a big impact in a small place, small impact in a big place? But we're, we're, we think that this is, this is an effective way forward. So the whole point is pressure on elected individuals, elected leaders in your community, and uh, pressure on those running for government. And short version is, again, we've got this guide up on reconsidermedia.com. You should go get it if this is at all interesting. But you can find evidence of police misconduct in your jurisdiction, even without a camera. We have social media, right? So go to the Facebook group or the, or the, there may be Instagram groups now. I don't know, but I don't know anything about Instagram, but the subreddit about your town, I see a lot of videos that people post there because they want visibility. Well, you can put that in the face of your local officials and say, what are you going to do about this? Right? What are you going to do about this? So figure out who are the people that appoint the police chief, the chief of police, the chief of police is accountable to and can be fired by. And as we've seen many times over this last weekend have been fired by, right? There have been a lot of police chiefs fired recently, which, you know, is only a start. There needs to be more work. But, you know, you go to these elected officials with this evidence, email them, take a picture of the email, call them, um, tweet them, take a picture of the tweet, make that public. And say, what are you going to do about it? I want a concrete plan about how this person is going to be, you know, this incident is going to be individually, or sorry, independently investigated and that any crimes are brought to justice. And, and I want a plan for how this kind of thing is not going to happen in the future. And I want to be concrete. I want to be publicized or else I will vote you out of office. So at the local level, who watches the watchman? Now that citizens have cameras, we do. We watch the watchman and we can take action. But there's also a lot going on at the national level. There is a whole lot going on at the national level, which we're a little less perplexed about exactly what to do, but we can talk a little bit more about what's going on. So maybe, Xander, uh, you've actually done a lot more research on this part. As we mentioned last time, a lot of this is coming in hot and live. Um, James Mattis just dropped his bombshell piece that uh, we've barely even read. And, and so you've, d- you've done the research on this, but let's talk about the president and called uh, Posse Comitatus and the Insurrection Act and all that good stuff. Yeah, and I'm very clearly not a constitutional scholar, and there is a lot of detail here. So I'm going to do my best to give you a summary. Uh, Sunday night, President Trump basically you know, told state and local officials, get this unrest under control immediately, or if you don't do it, I will. I'll use the U.S. military, the, the federal army. And you know, a lot of people immediately went, can he do that? Like, is that legal? And so now the conversation is going on, you know, if he were to attempt to do that, 
how would he justify it? And there's this, there, there's like two different bits of law. Uh, one is Posse Comitatus Act. I, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And that's from uh, 1878. And the idea here is that there are certain situations in which the U.S. government could use federal troops for the sake of domestic law enforcement or uh, crime fighting activities. And the actual law or part of the law uh, reads like this. From and after the passage of this act, it shall not be lawful to employ any part of the army of the United States as a posse comitatus or otherwise, the purpose of executing the laws, except in such cases and under such circumstances, as such employment of said force may be expressly authorized by the Constitution or by an act of Congress. So I kind of piggybacking on a thread that uh, this constitutional scholar, I think his, his last name is Professor Vladik. Um, it'll it'll be in the show notes. You can go read what he's written, and he's you know published scholarly papers on this before. Um, from what I understand from this is that it means that the Posse Comitatus. Uh, Act does not prohibit entirely the use of U.S. federal forces um, in domestic law enforcement purposes. And this actually, you know, there's this has happened before in the past. And we have another article that someone else shared with us in the Facebook group. And now I'm forgetting who did it. I'm sorry. But of five or six prior uh, occasions when the federal military, the army, one of them was in 92 in L.A. But if I recall correctly, and I'm, you know, again, I might be missing some precedent here. Eric, did you read that in all of those cases, essentially the, the request was made by the governor or local authority to have those federal troops deployed? So it was a request made by the local authority. Is that right? Nearly all of them. So the Insurrection Act is the flying the ointment of the Posse Comitatus Act. And the Insurrection Act is actually older than Posse Comitatus. It's just that these two things never got resolved, so it's a little ambiguous, but the Insurrection Act authorizes the president to deploy the army in three specific situations. One, when uh, the local governor requests it or, or mayor requests it because they believe that the National Guard is insufficient. Two, when uh, a state um, or a local government is flagrantly uh, violating United States law and is not, you know, and, and, and is not through courts and other means being, uh, you know, being restored to, to obey U.S. law. Or three, the state is unable to, uh, guarantees not, not the word used and it's not the right word, but is not able to protect the rights of civilians or generally enforce law. So the third case is, so the second case is when a state is in insurrection or rebellion. And the third case is when a non-state actor is in such a state of insurrection or rebellion that um, that order cannot be restored in any way and and uh, rights, you know, citizens rights cannot be cannot be protected. And so one of the ways that the army was brought to bear without the permission of the state was to enforce uh, desegregation. I believe uh, if I if I've got my sources right, Eisenhower used the Insurrection Act to justify the use of the 101st Airborne Division to enforce desegregation in Arkansas in 1957 after the United States had passed a law um, saying that desegregation or segregation was no longer legal nationwide and um, the state of Arkansas was uh, continuing to forcefully segregate. 
and and the state was not interested in complying with this federal law. And I believe it had already come through the courts and all that stuff. And at some point he said, all right, just send it in the military police and and they're going to you know oversee the buses and, and make sure that that desegregation begins and and that the local law enforcement, who, by the way, at the time, a lot of them were were pretty explicitly part of the Ku Klux Klan, which is part of the problem uh, at the time. But uh, the local law enforcement was was enforcing the antithesis of the law as opposed to enforcing the law. And so the military was brought in to do that. Other instances that were that that we've we've been made aware of by in particular readers, 1992, Los Angeles, 1967, Detroit and other situations like that. It was a, a riot that had reached a level of of um, conflagration that the that the governor and the mayor of, of those you know, governors of those states and mayors of those cities requested that the army be sent. So, uh, for example, the 101st was also sent to Detroit in 67. And, uh, you know, the 101st, for some reason, just happens to show up everywhere all the time. I don't know why. I don't think they jumped out of airplanes. They just rolled in. But so to, to sum it up, there are two ways legally. Um, and we've we've heard from a few lawyers on this, right? And lawyers will argue with each other. So no lawyer is the ultimate source of truth. But um, there are two ways that the president has the authority to deploy these troops. Uh, it is when a state is in open rebellion or there is a, a non-state insur- you know, or, or insurrection or uh, a um, non-state actor is in such a state of rebellion that the local state is unable to uh, enforce the rights of citizens. And uh, I think it, the, the lawyers that the, the couple lawyers I've talked to and certainly my own read of it, again, not being a con lawyer, is that this is that this situation comes nowhere close to that. And the uh, I believe the secretary of defense, uh, the, certainly the secretary of defense said that the president should not incur the insurrection act. And whether he said that the president probably couldn't legally or whether he just shouldn't. I, I, it's so new. I, I don't have all the, all the details. Yeah. It seems like there's basically the way that the two acts work together is that the posse comitatus basically says you can't use federal troops for police state actions except for these carve outs. And there are several exemptions within posse comitatus. And that one's from 1878. And then the insurrection act from 1807, like Eric mentioned, mm. it comes earlier, okay. sort of like, makes the most ambiguous category a little bit more more a little bit more ambiguous. So something else that's interesting about both the Posticomitatus Act and the Insurrection Acts, and again 1878 and 1807, is that they both have a history in the US uh related to themes of racial inequality and segregation. As uh Eric mentioned a minute ago, there were a number of circumstances when the Insurrection Act was used to justify federal uh intervention in the states and another one, you know, uh, Eric mentioned uh, Lyndon Johnson in Detroit, and essentially this was, again, to enforce uh, federal laws related to desegregation that were not being met in the South still. So that's the element of the Insurrection Act. The Posticomitatus Act was originally passed in 1878 to end the use of federal troops to police state elections in former Confederate states. So it was, it was sort of like a procedural mechanism in, in the process of reconstruction, and it was kind of when a lot of reconstruction was beginning to be backrolled and that was a political deal that was made sort of at the end of the 19th century so interestingly enough that both of those acts are again becoming relevant to our situation today so this is a very brief primer on both of these acts but the president so so the reason we brought up both of these is that you've probably heard about posse comitatus because people are saying posse comitatus prevents the president from ordering the army 
uh, without, you know, with, uh, at all, and, uh, or mostly at all. Uh, the Insurrection Act, which the president is threatening to, to invoke, uh, is, gives these, these means by which the president could at least feasibly um, try to have legal jurisdiction to unilaterally send the army to do what he wants, which uh, is, you know, if you think about it in a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of a big deal that, that it might be legally iffy right now that a single person in the United States has the ability to deploy the army wherever they want, Ooh. right? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal, right? And, and you know, Xander and I like to harp on this a little bit where we go, hey, this thing feels like it's a lot of power for a single person to have, but it's our person. Okay, cool. It's your person today, but it's not your person tomorrow. And when your person's gone and has done whatever you want them to do with that power, you know, the, the next person who might not be doing the things you want them to do also has that power, right? So... Uh, now, this is a, I, we, we can't give any of our listeners a hard time about the Insurrection Act because it was passed in 1807. None of you are responsible for that being there. However, I think it would be, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that's, that if it actually happens, which I'm going to predict it won't. Uh, I'm going to predict it won't happen because I think it's a bridge, it's a, it's a PR and political bridge too far, even for Trump, and he's probably getting some warnings. But, so I predict it won't happen. But if it were to happen, uh, it'd be a really interesting court case afterward and a pretty scary time in the middle. And I wouldn't predict what would happen. Um, but it's the kind of thing that I, that I, I personally hope uh, wouldn't happen because um, the, the precedent and the implications um, are pretty intense. And, you know, and, and the, you know, and I guess I, I guess I also have to say that, that the fact that the uh, president had uh, federal troops Right. So under his direct command in D.C., fire tear gas on peaceful protesters. This is all videotape. And so it's it's um, and the CDC said it was tear gas. Apparently, this is rumor. It wasn't the CDC said it was tear gas. The news reporters, including Fox, said they got tear gas. Right. So, you know, who are you going to believe? But uh, I know who I am. But uh, just the fact that the president ordered the federal military to use tear gas to break up a peaceful protest uh, and, and people were hit with batons and shoved and, and beaten, right? And the kind of thing that, again, if a normal person did this, a normal person runs up to someone on the street, hits them over the head with a baton, you're like, wow, that's battery. And so, you know, cops committing battery against peaceful protesters who, who had every right to be there uh, in order for the president to get a awkward photo op in front of a church, right? And so, like, it is, it is a little bit scary that this person in particular with, with a belief that that is an appropriate use of the military would have the unilateral ability to send the military to states that don't want it. So anyway, I think that's why people, you know, the people, if you don't know why people are scared, I think that's why people are scared. Um, it's a lot of power for someone who, who has, who I think like most Americans would disagree on, on that being a legitimate use of, of the police or of, of the military to, to take away people's rights to protest peacefully and lawfully in order that the president get a photo op using force. So I, I, that, that's why this is such a big deal. Uh, but, and so it's a little spooky, but if it happens, it'll be a really interesting court case afterward. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the challenge with the judiciary, which is just, it acts at its own pace. We should really um, see if we can get some sort of, I, I don't know, it'd have to be a specialist attorney or judge to come on and talk about what that process of all the individual 
checks being implemented, what that actually looks like. So listeners, if you know anyone who'd be interested in, in sharing that with us and, and sharing it with you, uh, let us know. We're, we're as we've kind of mentioned on this show in the last, uh, really engaged with all of our listeners and, and readers right now, and they're helping us put ideas together more quickly than we could just do on our own. And that means helping us with some of the research and source uh, collecting and uh, stuff like that. And it's, it's really helpful. So if you think that there's someone that we don't know about that we should try to reach out to and see if they'd be open to having a conversation, uh, let us know. You can reach us at, you know, eric at reconsidermedia.com, Xander at reconsidermedia.com, or just come chat with us in our Facebook group. It's just Re- Reconsider Media. Yeah, these are, these are uh, uncertain times. times, aren't they, Eric? Yeah, they are. And we've actually, we've run out of content for today, so a little bit shorter episode today. What you've got from us, again, is a little bit on what are the systemic reasons this might be happening at a local level, what can you do at a national level? What is happening? Uh, what is going on where you have a little bit less control um, other than, you know, perhaps calling your your congressperson to, you know, if, if this is if you're worried about what or if you sorry, if you have if you have feelings one way or another about what the president's doing and, you know, and this is the checks and balances system is kind of designed to check and balance, um, you know, an individual like the president. So if you have strong feelings about how that checks and balances system should, you know, should operate or, or what it should be doing in this situation, you can, you can call your congressperson. As mentioned before, it tends to be the case that on a local level, you can have an outsized impact. And on a national level, you can have a tiny impact as an individual. This is why protests can be so powerful. Uh, actually, speaking of protests, I saw a really interesting thing that was shared with me that I now can't find, but I saw it like 12 seconds ago. Actually, maybe I can even reopen it, but it is by a polling group who is at least uh, fairly reputable that tracks uh, whether white Americans or what percentage of white Americans support or uh, oppose or have no opinion on uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, it had been slowly trending from majority oppose uh, down to a lower percent oppose and slowly trending that uh, small percent uh, support to a higher percentage support. And since uh, George Floyd, for the first time, it crossed over that a plurality of white Americans support Black Lives Matter. And the uh, that number is like 41%. And I believe the percentage of Americans that oppose is now 30%. And the percent that have no opinion or, or you know, kind of don't know how they feel is 28%. This may feel like a very large number that doesn't, uh, that doesn't support it. But obviously, as we know, there is kind of argument over, over exactly how to word it and brand it. And, and people have all sorts of dumb arguments over branding when they all know they mean the same thing. It's, it's kind of shocking, actually. We actually had an argument on the Facebook group over whether Nazis or communists were worse. And it's like, does it matter? <laughs> like, does it matter? Probably not. And, um, and I think that was a big part of, of part one for us. It's like, okay, is, is this a Black Lives Matter thing? Is this a constitutional rights thing? Like, does it matter? Right? Should, and it just like, let's just ask the question. Should police be doing this? And should nothing bad happen to them? Or should, should there not be investigations? Should there not be prosecutions? Um, if they're guilty of this, should they not be prosecuted and, or put in jail? And, and I think that's the place everyone can agree on if we get past the branding problems that, that seem to be getting in the way so often. So um, anyway, what the, sorry, the whole point about the Black Lives Matter support thing is that uh, it seems, you know, protests that, that sometimes work and take a lot of time, but, uh, you know, they, they sometimes have an impact. And I don't I don't think we actually have a good study 
I don't, sorry, I don't have access to consider right now over like what conditions make protests to actually change public opinion over time and how long it takes and, and when it just doesn't matter and when it backfires and all that stuff. But certainly that the trend is moving that direction and it's spiked very recently due to the protests. And look, opinions translate into votes, translate into political action at least sometimes. So so it's been, you know, the world is the world is in a certain place right now, but it is also a place that that there seem to be some some indicators that it is changing quickly. Uh, including including James Mattis's uh, piece about the president is a is a like very surprising, unexpected unexpected statement where he said that the president was a danger to the Constitution. And uh, you know whether you agree with that or not is is irrelevant in, in that it's a it's actually a very very it's I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it is not a common thing for uh, former secretaries or especially former military leadership who in the United States is so unpoliticized to come out and say something like that. And, and Mattis said that's why he hadn't spoken up before, but, but things crossed a line for him. So uh, my, my own personal prediction is that this is the beginning of something's going to change in a big way. And, and that this is the beginning of uh, this is the, the, the dominoes are the dominoes on something are starting to fall. And that's all I'm willing to predict. I'm about about at the same place as you are. Yeah. So what what's our plan for the next couple of days? Uh, Eric and I are basically trying to stay as active as possible all across Reconsider, both, for example, the guide that we put together, and we'd love some feedback on that if you have it. Mm. Um, other ideas that we could you know, explore differently, podcasts and so on and so forth. But something that we feel really fortunate to have is uh, a community of listeners and readers that are uh, extremely intelligent and critical thinkers and willing to look at things in a way that's sometimes not familiar with them. And so we learn a lot, a lot, a lot from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So please do reach out to us and have a conversation because you know we think between the networks that we all sort of collectively uh, possess in, in this small reconsider community, community, we can really we can really push good ideas far. So let's, let's just have, have a conversation, guys. Yeah. All right. We will, you know, I, we spent these two episodes not having the normal reconsider music. Um, it's, sort of our, it's sort of our like flag half staff decision that we make. As, as much as we are going to stay active on a lot of stuff, we may reach a point where we also want to make sure that, that you know, we're covering other topics that are important for the country. And it's, it's kind of a hard, that's a hard decision to make about like, at what point do you kind of stop making this your primary focus, you know, police brutality, your, your primary focus. And at what point does something else take up some of your brain space and, and for us, some of our airwaves and, and we're going to do our best in kind of making that, making that judgment. And, and at what point, you know, we're going to be kind of, we're going to like, let ourselves have some fun again and laugh again. And you know, and explore new weird stuff again that you may not even be thinking about. So we will, we will get back to that at some point. So uh, we'll see you next time, uh, dear listeners. Stay safe out there. And we'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash 
Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.